Hello, hello, beautiful people. Boy, do I have a guest for you guys today. As you know, November is, well, it's the 11th month, and I traditionally do step 11, which has to do with prayer and meditation and that kind of stuff. So I had done the step 11 episode last week, and then I'm thrilled to introduce you to this man today. I've only met him a couple times and he just left a mark in my heart. And I love all that he stands for and how he's probably the humblest guy I have ever met. And I just really appreciate everything about him. I hope that you will get the same value. I know you will. I know you will. He's just, he's just incredible. And we're going to talk about spirituality and all kinds of good stuff. So sit back and enjoy. Thank you. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Hi, it's, a, it's an honor to be here. I'm so excited we've been able to make this happen. I am going to share with the audience real quick kind of how I got exposed to you and why it was so important for me to have you on here to share your wisdom with everyone. I went through a course uh, called Ditch the Booze in another program. And I told my audience about it when I was doing it. And you were, I I don't know, one of the speakers, teachers. You just imparted Mm. your wisdom on us. Mm. And you have a lot of experience in an arena I don't. I have not been able to say the G word in the context that most people do. What's the G word again? You know, that God one. Oh, I'm I'm horrible. Even like whenever I'm in a serenity prayer environment, I won't say it. I just... Mm. It's sure. just a, a mind block, but sure. I don't know if it's a permanent one. So mm-hmm. I'm getting there. So I'm just, I would love for you to share a little about your experience and your backgrounds. And then I have a feeling we'll just go where we need to go. Sure. Yeah. So excited to, uh, to be here with you. And thank you again for asking me to, to join this uh, podcast. Uh, I get, my name is Patrick, and I'm in my 50-somethings. And back, wow, let's go back in time. I was, a, I was a, an avid Boy Scout. Like, Boy Scouts was my thing. And our, our troop leader was probably the most devout Roman Catholic. Like, he was more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> and everything we did in that scouting troop, and it was it was housed in a Catholic church, was evolved and revolved around the Catholic church and its ins and its outs. So it was a group of boys. We did a lot of camping, like classic Boy Scout things, traveling, history, merit badges. But we always had religion at its core and at its center. And it was religion. It was Catholic religion. And in that time period, I thought of heaven and hell more than almost anything else in my life. Everything was heaven or hell. And I was convinced as, as, a, as a Roman Catholic in the 1970s that there's a good chance I'm probably going to go to hell. <laughs> and I was doing everything I could possibly do to sneak my way, almost trick my way into heaven. Not because I loved the G word. I feared hell. I just did. I feared it. And in that, I did some uh, most amazingly scrupulistic, that's not a word, Catholic things. Like I would go and, and go to confession at least once a week because like I didn't take the trash out or something convinced there I am, I'm going to hell. I'd baptize, like not baptize, I would bless myself in the holy water, like a, a renewing of the baptism 
over and over because I was convinced that would get you years off of purgatory. Seven days for blessing yourself and seven years for blessing yourself with holy water. So my early spiritual kind of development was really in this hyper scrupulous activity to get me out of hell. And that's for me is I think where my journey began out of complete fear. And then I went from Boy Scouts. I decided, well, what's the best way to get out of hell? Become a priest. <laughs> so at 18, I signed up. Well, at 17, I signed up. And uh, 18, I turned 18 and I entered this monastic living of a, of a Roman Catholic seminary. Took, you know, vowed celibacy at 18 years old and studied for a really long, for like for the next eight years. And I was deeply into it and I loved it. I started working out in the parishes, doing funerals and baptisms and everything a priest would do. And I thought that was it. That was my career. That's my calling. That's what I was going to be, a father of holy. And it was, it was a wonderful life. I, I think the life in the, in the seminary was the best part of it because you were, you were in a group of, of like another hundred guys. And, and we just, it was just a big fraternity. And it was, and we struggled together and we laughed together and it was just a wonderful time. I equated almost something what I would think, and I never have been, would almost be like a military journey. You're like you're in the trenches, you're doing crazy stuff, but you're in it together. And we were, you know, fighting souls more than like bullets and the, the, the enemy you could see, so to speak. So that was really my spiritual foundation was a complete horror and fear of going to hell. How's that for a start? That's a crazy start. I didn't realize it was based on a fear. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. me. And it also, not that this is on topic, but it explains why you're so eloquent as well, because you you did all those baptisms and all that public speaking, because I really enjoy listening to you, which was part of why I wanted you on here. And the other thing I thought of is, what a nice experience where you don't have to deal with woman drama. It's true. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was my other thought. Yeah, I grew up with uh, three brothers and my dad. So it was like, you know, four sons, my dad, and, and God bless my mom who took care of us all. So, but I, I never had a sister and going right into the seminary was, it was very, very natural for me. It just, I, I was on hockey teams and stuff and, you know, growing up, Boy Scouts, being around the, the all male environment was, yeah, I could navigate really easily. Yeah, that makes sense. What, how did your family feel about you doing that, especially at such a young age? It wasn't such of an Irish Catholic family that one son had to, like that might have been the previous generation, but it was definitely a huge honor. It was definitely, you were seen as, oh man, talk about an ego trip. You were seen as this person above everybody else in a way. So it completely was, just, it, just, it just pumped up your ego so much. When you came home for like a weekend or something and you had your black clerical dress on and and, you, you know, wherever you went, father, you know, father. And it, it was just you were like the like the mayor coming home or it was it was a real honor in my family for that. But it was the most lonely existence. You know, you had that feeling of, oh, look, at everyone's looking at me and everyone wants my wisdom and everyone wants, you know, time and to talk and the secret of life. For some reason, like I might have had it, but in the inside, I was just a tortured little kid that was scared of everything and felt extremely lonely and separated from that. I've, I felt separated and seeing my uncles and aunts going through all these problems and, you know, my, my, my brothers getting girlfriends. And I always thought I wanted that too. But underneath, I'm like, I can't because I'm on this secret mission, you know, to 
to save the world and save souls and save my own self from going to hell. That didn't change. That whole concept about thinking you were going to hell, it didn't change the more educated you got and the more you buried yourself into that lifestyle. I wish it did. It didn't change till I think a long time after. I think it didn't change until after I left the priesthood. Yeah. It had a real entering the seminary and going down the priest path was real was not that hard. Leaving was extremely difficult. That was the hardest part was letting that go because I thought I was letting God down. And I was yeah, I was really disappointed. And then I thought I would meet God in heaven and God would be like Yo, what happened? I called you to be a priest and then you left and got married and you had a kid. Like, what's going on with you, Patrick? So I really thought I let God down. I let my, my family down. I let a lot of people down is what my feeling was. And that was really the desert time, the desert journey, if you will. The Buddha in the, in the forest or the Christ in the wilderness. That was the most lost time of just not, you know, I, I wasn't a priest anymore and I didn't have all those magic secret powers, which by the way, there's no such thing as magic secret powers. We don't get them. Even though people think we do, we don't. But just guys, <laughs> sure, there's, you know, there's a spiritual aspect of it, but it, it doesn't like on an ordination day, it, all this magic doesn't just happen. And like, you don't like women anymore or guys on some, you know, wherever you're attracted to, or you don't get lonely or anything like no magic happens like nothing changes it's you it's always you so leaving was the hard part that was the really hard part and i went through all seminary and all that part sober i I wasn't drinking because i knew i knew at 18 i i should not drink because it's a dangerous thing so at 16 and 17 i already had a poor relationship with alcohol and so all through seminary i pretty much you know just didn't drink because it just separated me from this whole journey. So was the drink, I have two questions. Sure. Was the drinking part of the inspiration? Like maybe that was one of the voices in your head or, or what you were thinking, like with the, with the fear factor, did you almost identify that as a problem you needed to solve by going to the seminary? Mm. And my second question is why did you leave? What made, what was there a, a specific mm-hmm. incident or like, like how do you go from one extreme to the other? Yeah. I didn't go to the seminary to save myself from like drinking. I, I think part of it was to, to save my soul from the reasons why I wanted to drink. The reasons why was not to feel lonely. The reasons why was not to feel disconnected for drinking. The reason why was like, I was obsessed mentally with thinking like, when am I getting my next one? Or, you know, I got like a fake ID when I was like 15 or 16 because I was already connected to the church. So I got all the documents from my older brother, like baptismal certificates and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And I went to the registry and got a fake ID. That was wonderful. But yeah, I think I went to the seminary to deal with that, that internal conflict that was always there, that alcohol numbed, if you will, you know, alcohol calmed it veiled it it fogged that disconnect feeling without it being in the seminary i fully confronted it and i felt at peace in the seminary a lot i i really did my prayer meditation the the life the the rituals was was very freeing it was the most free time of my life 
being a celibate that has to be in chapel for three or four hours a day and then studying the rest of the time and doing a few goofy things with your with your friends, like going out for ice cream or sneaking out past curfew or something like that. It was completely freeing. There was no bills. There was nothing to worry about. I had my own room. Everything was taken care of and you could just be. You had no worry whatsoever. And you could just focus internally. That's all you did have time for. And it was wonderful. And if you weren't drinking, you could really confront yourself and be, be on that journey of liberation and freedom. It was wonderful. But to the second part, eventually I just got so lonely. I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. I was lonely. Just, yeah, <laughs> it was a brutal, scary loneliness. I felt a lot. And I couldn't chase that away. And it was really hard the last probably you know, nine months before I finally told them I was leaving. They actually put me in not just spiritual direction, like with a, with a trained priest, but they put me in like actual like psychotherapy with a non-religious connected person, like a professional in the real world, so to speak, because I was not doing good. I, was, I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. Looking back, I definitely was clinically depressed. I just... They just didn't call it that then or whatever. And, and, I, and I, it's interesting. I, I realized this, not just now, I've known it, but I've never really said it before. I used to drink cough syrup. I used to go get cough syrup, NyQuil, that's what it was, to help me go to sleep at those times. Because I wouldn't drink alcohol, even though there's alcohol in NyQuil. But I bought generic brand of whatever the generic brand was. It was cheap of, of NyQuil to help me go to sleep during those times. I never drank during the day or anything, but I was just realizing it, that I used to go get like a six pack of, of NyQuil. And it was really, really, really hard to leave. And it was harder to stay. I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it, was, it was hard to leave, but it was much harder to stay. So I left. And then I, I would say that's where my spiritual awakening began. Not so much that the seminary wasn't. I think I was at peace there. But a lot of that peace, I was settled that I kind of followed the rituals and the teachings of the church, which are beautiful and beautiful for many people. And I felt as though I was in good standing so I could be kind of free. But for me, that was like the religious rule. And it's totally okay. But my spiritual awakening really, really came when I no longer wanted heaven, nirvana, the kingdom of God, because I feared the alternative, the hell, the punishment. But I wanted to live in nirvana, the kingdom of God, heaven with the spirit, because I loved it because it was me, because I was home in that Nirvana state or in that enlightened state. It wasn't motivated by fear, but it was motivated by love and, and connection and wholeness. So I left, yeah, like, late, like, like, let's say like 30 years old to round it off. And then from 30 to 50, it was, I mean, it was a roller coaster of life. I, I did a lot of traveling. I did some road trips. I became a teacher. What else are you going to do with a bachelor's of philosophy, master's of ministry, and a doctorate of divinity? I love that part. Love, <laughs> love, love that part. You're going to become a teacher. So I did. <laughs> yeah. So I taught in Catholic schools and I taught in grad schools. And I've been teaching around the Boston area in different forms whatsoever. And I did go back and got my master's of education at Simmons. So technically, I'm a Simmons shack as well. So I can become a licensed teacher as well. That's my, my academic background, a couple of masters and a doctorate of divinity. So I, I did that in this, in this, you know, I finished up some of those degrees during that time especially my education type stuff, so I could teach legally, at least at public schools. I mean, private schools is not an issue. 
And and then there was this woman. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that always the way? Yeah. So we talked about women, but then, well, she came into my life. And I don't know where you want to go next, but that's that's, she's obviously part of this journey. Yeah. I want to hear about that. I just... I'm going to share a little about my disconnect real quick, Mm -hmm. because when you talk about doing all this studying, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a reading comprehension thing. I don't know of any kind of stifling things about my learning abilities, but I can't digest like the literature. I can't digest the Bible. It's not, I can't get it. Well, like if I go to church now on a Sunday and Pastor Buddy talks about it in real life terms mm-hmm. and it tells a story, I can get it. Mm. So just incredible, incredible props to you because I can't even imagine digesting it. Mm. You know, even if I was trying, I, I can't. I mean, he has those like read along and do some fun things and it, it feels more engaging and more, you know, 2020 kind of religion or, or whatever it's called. Sure. At this point. But that's what I can connect to, which is probably why churches are, you know, evolving a little bit. But mm. I can't, I just can't wrap my head around the words. I don't get the message. So I, I just think, want yeah, I believe that many people, especially in the United States, or at least in Western culture, that Christianity, like amongst many religions, well, they, it, they've been hijacked. And they've been hijacked in that scripture is not history and nor was it ever intended to be history. The writers weren't writing, you know, these books. So people two, three, and, you know, a thousand years later would have a literal historical narrative of the events that were taking place. Like if someone went back with the Ken Burns, you know, uh, video recorder and recorded these things. People knew when they were writing scripture, uh, let's just, we'll just take the Catholic Bible or, or the, the Christian scriptures, which is made up of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures. They, they were written over a thousand year period of time. There was no like one sit down, like, oh, I'm going to bang this out. And, and people that were writing were writing, writing poetry of the times that would touch people of all times, but it wasn't necessarily meant to be. If you went back to this exact time, this is exactly how it would have looked. Because people didn't share story that way, nor did they understand that that was supposed to mean it that way. The Gospels, right? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, they weren't necessarily written to show us exactly like, and Jesus had porridge, and Jesus had a, you know, a a bread and cheese sandwich. And like, they weren't, that wasn't their intent. Their intent wasn't to get the days right. Their intent wasn't to get the every single literal thing right. It was to capture the spirit to help us connect to that universal message. And it's been hijacked of, it must be literal. You can't interpret it anyway. And that's the way it is and say nothing. Now, to a fundamentalist, that's going to piss that person off. I get it. There's just no other way around it because that's the way it is. And, and, and God sealed it and it's perfect and you can't change it or whatever. But all the writers would say, that's not what we intended whatsoever. That's not the purpose of this, you know? Just think of pre-writing. Like, most like Native Americans in, in North America didn't have a written language, but they passed down sacred stories from generation to generation to generation to generation. And the imagery and the meaning of those sacred stories, sure, they might have been slightly altered by someone's 
grandma or someone's grandpa or what. But the internal meaning was was eternal. The creation narratives of from the underworld to here and what your spirit means and what your duties are as a tribal member. And the same with the Christian message. Uh, you know, the gospel message is, is, is pretty clear to love God and love your neighbor. If it's that simple, yeah. why the world <laughs> do a better job with that? As we, we tend to mess everything up so much. And I think the deeper one gets into the spiritual path, the simpler it just becomes. We complicate it so much, and it doesn't need to be complicated. What are we searching for? And this is going to sound harsh, and I don't mean it. You know, the next best retreat, the next best yoga class, the next best quick lick book, the next best, you know, self-help guru that's going to have a, a magic tent meeting, and we're all going to sit around and become liberated. Everyone is seeking. This, this goes on forever. It never stops until you stop it and just sit and be. You know, I don't want to know the next best anything. I just want to know me. I don't want to become this thing or become that thing. I want to just be. And the more we can do that and return to ourselves and just be, I think the more freedom we discover. We keep screwing it up so much. And then it, and it never ends. It just never ends. And like I said, until you end it. That's my t-shirt for tonight. It never ends until you end it. I like that. I'm really relating to this. I hadn't thought of it as just being, but when you were talking about spiritual awakening, and if I heard you correctly, you went from fear to acceptance almost. That was kind of your journey. Yeah, I think fear, acceptance, and then a state of being, or I aming or... This is the hard thing. This is the this is where it becomes unnameable. When you read the Tao Te Ching for the first time, the first thing that comes up, it's like if you can name the Tao, it's not the Tao. <laughs> but it, I think from fear to acceptance to a state of just being. When someone asks me, "How are you?" I say, "I'm radically okay." I love that, and that's okay. Like it's okay just to be okay. I don't need to seek more stuff. I don't need anything. In fact, my goal is to get rid of stuff. My goal is to get rid of the excess of all of that. And the more I strip myself away from all these things, and the more I just, I just breathe and I know that I'm breathing. I just walk and I know that I'm walking. I just am with the person and I know I'm with the person. That's enough. You're 100% right. I just can relate because I feel like that was my experience this year. And I think for me, a big piece of it was taking away all the coping things that I had used prior. Mm. I wasn't gambling and I wasn't drinking. And I wasn't drinking out of fear in some cases because I didn't want to drunk text the guy, right? Mm. So that was part of it. But I had to deal with whatever was happening. And then once you process that and it shifts to then understanding, acceptance, and then mm. for me, it turned into gratitude. Sure. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for yeah. these challenges. Now I can do X, Y, Z. And it, it, it reframed my mind. And as far as I'm concerned, forever, right? Because if mm -hmm. all the worst or all those things were what I perceived as the worst and I got through them and I'm mm -hmm. okay and I can appreciate them and see the lessons, mm -hmm. then I'm invincible. What can go wrong? Right. You know? So then I am the just being stuff is, oh my gosh, so much practice. And if you can, before we get into the girl, if you have any tips on how to help. Now, I, I've been <laughs> yeah. in your, you know, in your class and I know the washing the dishes, 
on my road trip, we were sitting in a bar listening to music. And my friend afterwards is like, what were you thinking about? Like you had this crazy ass smile on your face. And I was like, I was just listening to the music. I'm with a friend I haven't seen in four years. Like just gratitude. I was just sitting there mm. being in gratitude. Mm-hmm. But it takes mindful practice every day for me to get. And it's glimpses. I'm still working sure. on it. Absolutely. If you have any guidance on that, I would love that. My next great bestseller is going to be a book called It's All a Paradox. <laughs> I think it is. I think thinking is the is the worst addiction of our time. Thinking to me is just, it's just the devil, right? Because we think, and then we think about thinking, and then we think about thinking, thinking, and then we're, it's just, it, that too never ends. Go back to the t-shirt, right? Until we end it. The biggest thing I think is, I think, is stop thinking. And what, what do you mean stop thinking? I mean, I, okay, I'll tell you what I mean by stop thinking. When you experience something that's really beautiful, and most of us can relate to, say, like a sunset or a sunrise or like the most amazing cloud formation, and you're laying on your back and you're watching it, you're not thinking. You and I in this conversation, there's lots of this that neither of us are thinking. We're just reacting and responding to each other. I'm not thinking of the next thing I'm going to say, per se, right? Or like I'm writing or or after this, I got to, oh, I I, got to go do this for my kid and do that. And then tomorrow I got to test it, right? Or whatever, Right. I'm just here reacting. When you're experiencing the most precious moments of life, it becomes timeless and you're not thinking. You're just witnessing. You're just experiencing it. And the more we practice a state of witnessing and just being, the more we live in that realm of I amness or I, I'm being. And it's not like, you know, that was going to sound insulting. It's not like you run out and hug a tree and like, you know, like I'm one with nature. That's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is you're not hugging the tree. You realize the tree's beautiful and you're beautiful and you're just witnessing each other. Like I often say this, that when you go to nature and you see trees and you see mountains and rivers and streams, most of us don't go, that tree, man, should be a little taller. Or look at that tree. <laughs> bend over this way a little bit. That tree's nice. That's a pretty ugly tree. Or that river, man, I just wish it flew just a little sly to the, to the south or something. We just love nature for its beauty. We don't judge it, right? We just witness it. And non-thinking, going back to the what I guess I'm trying to say is by not thinking, we can experience life. We can breathe it in. We can, we can see it. And our thinking mind just gets in the way. Our thinking mind's a tool and we need to use it. Right. I, I, I need to I cook dinner tonight for my family. Like I'm using my thinking mind and that's important. But it's not when I'm cooking dinner. I'm now thinking about all the stresses of life. I'm just cooking dinner. Mm. Right. Like that's all I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm into that. And I'm just trying to cook dinner to the most weird part of that as possible. Most of us, when we cook dinner, not a judgment. But we have the radio on or the TV on or our phone on. And there's three or four other things going on. And we're thinking about tomorrow. If you want to practice being present, just be present. (laughs) There's nothing more to it. Get rid of that other stuff because it, it keeps the thinking mind going. The only way to practice it is to practice it. Practice helps us experience and limit the thinking mind. And the more we do that, the better we just kind of naturally jump into it. And we can go from the tool mind to the experienced present mind. For the Christian, 
I always come back to this. Jesus taught the kingdom of God. And everyone asked, well, where is it? He's like, you'll never find it unless you have like a heart and mind of a child. Why? Because the heart and mind of the child just is. They're just playing. They're just experiencing. You know, once they start worrying about tomorrow and all those things, that's when childhood gets lost. It's sad. You see it. And as an educator, you see it. And then, you know, and all these stresses come in. But for the most part, a child just loves and experiences and there's not much thinking of tomorrow. So even Jesus was saying to see the kingdom be like a kid, right? And if you go looking for it, you ain't going to find it. It's not out there somewhere. It's in here. And I'm pointing to my heart. It's in here. That's where it is. So just be, you'll be in the kingdom and be like a child of the heart and mind. Stop worrying about tomorrow and obsessing about the shit you did in the past. Be fully present here. And when you cook dinner, just cook dinner. I have to be honest. And I think you said practice. Mm -hmm. I still have to practice in my thinking brain has gotten better at identifying it's time to be present. Mm -hmm. And you reminded me of that with nature because I'll, I could be looking up at a cloud and be like, okay, Bobby, just look at the cloud. Yeah. And, and, and some of the things like that I've learned from you and the books I'm reading and the, and the, the stuff I'm trying to understand about time space and, you know, all the things that we could probably talk about forever, but won't it's, it's a deliberate thinking practice that mm. I've been doing, but then I also seem to catch moments where I am just being am. Yeah. So it's a skill. Like my brain still races in meditation at times, you know, of it, course. It, yeah. So I like that you said that and it's still a challenge to shut off that thinking brain for me a little bit. I think it is for everybody. And I, I think it's like most things it's on, it's on a scale or, 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 you know, a spectrum of where you're at, like the, the longer or the shorter or, or whatever, you know, the stresses in life and it waxes and wanes, but it, it's a constant practice, uh, a reminder of the constant practice. And some of the most simple things we can do for those that can is walk, simply walk to walk. Those that can sit and just sit to sit. And that's why all the activities that, that I try to do, like one of my favorite is, is weeding. It really is. And I like to weed my, my, my lawn. I have a lawn now or whatever, and I don't use chemicals or whatever. I like to handpick all the weeds out of it. Just because I like to touching Mother Earth and pulling the weed and just, that's it. I don't do anything else besides pull weeds. And, and that, I feel fully alive. There's nothing more I need at the time. There's nothing less I need. It's just being. And when you can fully, you know, so why just be? Well, one, I'm connected, I think, to everything when I am. I see that the grass is there because the sun has given it energy. Things that have died in the past have given fertilizer, right? It's, it's interbeing. I, I connect with the interbeingness. Myself is here because of those that died before me. And, you know, all the things that interbe, I can see and witness when, I'm just being. At the same time, for the ones we love, I can finally fully be present with them. And I can fully listen and be there in a loving, tending way because my mind isn't somewhere else. We know when we're with somebody, if their mind is somewhere else, it's almost better not even to be with them. It's frustrating. But why just be? One, to experience the interconnectedness of all life. Two, when I'm with someone that I love, I can fully be present to them. Like that. 
So speaking of someone's we love, uh, <laughs> <laughs> would you love to continue your journey with us? Mm. You know, I explored life a little. And in that, I did pick up drinking when I went back out into the real world because everyone else was doing it. So why can't Patrick? I didn't. And you're Irish, right? Yeah. Well, trust me. It's yeah. <laughs> in my family, you're either in recovery or you should be. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I love you. But yeah, I, I picked up because I wanted to connect. Like, right. I just did. I didn't pick up because I wanted the drink at the beginning. I picked up because I wanted to connect. I felt lonely without drinking. I didn't really drink alone. And for me, and again, like I stopped drinking when I was 18. I didn't have a long history of physical addiction. I, I didn't have trouble like with the law. Like none of that was there. It was a mental obsession I had. The external stuff never, never came to anything at 17 or whatever, you know. But so I picked it up. I kept a six pack in my, my fridge. It would last a couple of days. Like it, it just, I made beer with my brothers. Like we had this whole little beer factory in our basement and it wasn't to like get more beer. It was like a really craft. It was a wonder. It was a bonding thing. Oh my God, I'm making beer with my dad and my brothers. And I just, I was becoming, I believe falsely. So then it was an illusion, more connected. And the alcohol brought me back to the real world. No longer a priest. Now I'm just a dude like you. I'll sit down, drink beer and, you know, say swear words and stuff. Yeah. So it was a connection for me. But for me, the progression of drinking, it was long, slow and hard. It, it, it was over years of more. It was over years of I never do that again. It was over years of switching like, oh, I'm not going to drink scotch anymore. Or maybe I'll just drink beer and not vodka. All those things. Uh, there's no war story uh, to be told here. But the relationship with alcohol only grew worse. I did, and I did most of all my drinking alone. Uh, I mean, I, I was in a gathering. I would drink a lot. But my primary drinking was alone. And in, in a bizarre way, this is what alcohol I think is bizarre. It gave me what I wanted, but it didn't last in this. This is what I mean. I wanted to live in the present moment. Alcohol, in a way, does allow us to do that, right? It numbs the past and the future. But there's consequences with alcohol. And, like, you know, you need more of it, and it, and you come out of it, and all, all the negative consequences with relationships and all that stuff started happening. But alcohol, for a part, calmed my mind. It calmed the anxieties. It calmed, it calmed my thinking mind. It really did. And that, to me, I, I started losing my kind of my spiritual journeys, the more alcohol came in, the more disconnected with myself I became. Myself was always there. And I, I truly believe the true self is never touched by alcohol. It's there. It will never be damaged by anything. Any addiction, any activity, any you know unhealthy thing, the true you will always be there. And it's about recovering that. So when I started drinking to connect, it took a really bad road of getting worse and worse and worse in progression. And in that time, <laughs> I did meet a girl and we did fall in love and I did ask her to marry me. And the irony is she was not a drinker at all. She grew up in a very Midwestern Pentecostal Christian family that thought alcohol was the devil and never been around alcohol. I mean, she went through college and grad school and just no alcohol. 
And she was like, whoa, these Irish like to drink. (laughs) (laughs) She's not Irish. And she just had no experience in the alcohol world. And we got together. And I think by the time we fell in love and and got engaged and all that stuff, she was already in it. And I was too. And then she said, wait a second, this drinking thing's a little over the top. But by then for us, it was, we were already in it. It was, I mean, the course is going back, but we just kept going forward. And that's when times when I when I said, like, you know, I'm going to stop and the deals and the hiding on her and all that crap that, that's unhealthy that comes in. And we have a wonderful relationship, but truly are in love. And it, it, and it is a beautiful thing. But it's it's not like not storybook because those are meant for storybooks. Right. It's real. We have a, a soon to be seven year old daughter, our only child. And I know when she was was pregnant with our daughter is when my life really crashed. Like, I can do this journey. I can do these things. I can, cannot be responsible for another human being. <laughs> I guess that's just not me. Like, I, I can't, I, I'm just too effed up, like, in so many ways. I'm, I'm the spiritual warrior, and I'm this, you know, drinking dude, and it's all connected. You know, I'm this Irish, like, I, I, the ghosts of the, of the Irish poets come in my head when I'm drinking. Like, it, there's, like, history there, and there's, like, all this kinds of stuff going on. And then, you know, she's pregnant, which we planned. We wanted, well, we did want to. I was, I was really nervous about it, but I went along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. That. Yeah, and so I'm like, I never planned it. Again, that was planned, but I didn't ever plan on having a kid. So we did, and her nine months of pregnancy, I, I don't remember a couple of hours of being sober, let alone, like, I was just, that was it. I was just, I was in deep. I was just drinking straight vodka. Hospital, straight vodka, the, the whole thing. The baby came home. Within two weeks of the baby coming home, she drove me to rehab. And it was bad. It was, it was basically, I, I, I was figuring out how to end my life at that point. It was just, that's it. Like, I'm just going to kill myself. And it was, it was the plans and the talking about it. And I can't do this anymore. We're really, you know, scaring my family, obviously, because I'm figuring out how to kill myself when my baby's two weeks old, because I just can't do any of this. She drove me to, to a hospital, just drove me to an ER and said, this dude's going to kill himself. And he's like, I don't know how drunk he is, but he's been drunk for the past nine months. And that's when, when I started getting that kind of recovery help. I've dabbled in, in the AA worlds and different recovery groups all my life. Even when I was in seminary at 18, 19, 20, 21, we would go to like AA meetings. Like we would, we were allowed to leave the seminary and, and we, a group of guys would go down because we were like, yeah, we're the, we're those, for those that read the big book, there's a section about like the young people, like you don't have to go through what we went through because the young folk are being taught. And we were the young folk in the eighties of the old AA rooms where guys would just yell at us to get brooms and ashtrays and chairs and all this stuff. And I went through all that. So I, I knew recovery world. I knew the language or whatever. But this, I finally lived it when I, when I went to, I call it lockup. I don't know. I was just locked up on a ward in the psych ward for a while. It was medically detoxed. Thank God, because that would have, I don't know, that very dangerous. So I definitely needed that help. And that became, that really began my adult recovery journey. My youth one of, of 16 and 17, it was in here. It was in my brain. I knew there was an issue. But in, you know, in my 40s is when like the external stuff started coming out. Not just the mental obsession, but the physical toll and the relationship tolls and all that kind of kind of thing. So we're married, wonderful relationship. We have a seven-year-old, but yeah, from from priest or from I like to say from father to father. <laughs> 
the Catholics were like that. But yeah, and so that brings me up to where I am now, I guess. Do you mind if I dig a little deeper? Yeah, no. Like, and, and I appreciate everything that you've shared so far, but I'm not, I'm not understanding a piece of the story. Yeah. It was all about lack of connection. Yeah. But then I think I heard you found the girl. So mm-hmm. one would assume you were connected. Was there something that I missed that ramped up the drinking? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think it's an, that's, the, that's the perfect question. Because the connection had nef- nothing to do with being a celibate. The connection had nothing to do with getting married. The connection had nothing to do with drinking beer. The connection had nothing to do with raising a kid. The connection had everything to do with myself. Everything was about connecting to me and the disconnection from me. I thought the loneliness was external. I thought the, you know, all these things to be from a marriage to, to alcohol, to becoming a priest, to becoming all these things were all external things to try to fill up the loneliness or fill up the disconnection until, not, not until, but till I re-realized, because I've been in these moments many times, that the real connection is with ourselves. The real peace, equanimity, is when we fully accept us, like ourselves, love ourselves, see ourselves as, as loving beings interconnected with all other human beings and all other life in our earth. And no matter where you go, with somebody or without somebody, you can't be lonely when you're connected with self. So the, the wife, kid, priest, caller, none of that filled what I was looking for. And the only thing that filled that was nothing, <laughs> was nothingness. I didn't need anything other than to sit and be. Wow. Wow. That really ties it all together and makes, it, it makes complete sense to me once we took it to that, to that other level. So I really appreciate that. I have another question though. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to treatment or the psych ward or whatever, Yeah, which I did myself too. And for me, it wasn't there that I figured out this me stuff. Like I said, it was for me, it was this last year once I removed some stuff because in rehab, mm-hmm. I didn't have alcohol or gambling. I just had to do life. So you mentioned trying all different recovery things or exposure and education around different recovery things. Mm. Was it just the journey that got you to where you are today? Or was it your past education about the religion stuff? Like, how mm. did, like mm-hmm. I'm imagining you being this package, right? And now here you sit with the pretty little bow, but I missed how you got from the assembly line to this pretty little bow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I completely appreciate that question, <laughs> and there is no there is no sitting under the the Bodhi tree and then waking up like enlightened. It's a journey, right? It, it's it's it is a roller coaster. It's glimpses. It's it's the comings and goings. It's not a secret here, but I try the best I can to practice the heart of the Christ and the mind of the Buddha. For me, those are my two spiritual guides. There's many others, but for me, I can, I can connect to those two and what they have said. But they had in their stories a desert experience where they came out of it and were baptized. And, you know, the Buddha did all these wonderful stories of, you know, like living from the princely life to becoming this ascetic and, and trying to give up everything to get enlightened, including food and, you know, every, everything you can think of. 
until like he discovered this middle way, this middle path. It's not the extremes. That's why like radically okay is, is okay with me because it's like the Buddha. It's like, ah, I'm, I'm in the middle. It's good. And so for me, there was, there is no metanoia. There's no like lightning moment. There's no Paul that gets hit by lightning or Luther that gets hit by whatever. There's, there isn't, it's a constant unfolding. And what I like to think about it is it, it's a constant returning to self. And at times I'm closer to myself. And at times I, I add a layer or, I like to say a veil or fog it in. And then the more I practice, the closer I get back to my, to my true home myself. And, and that's, that's an ebb and flow. That's a tide. And I suspect that tide will go in and out again. And that's the acceptance of that, I think, is the spiritual awakening. That that's what it is. It's not, there are no magical moments sitting under the tree and everything has changed from that you know, before and after a moment. We put too much stock in that because if something screws up or whatever, oh, everything's ruined, but it's not that way. And that, that's why I think the most, the most spiritual teaching in all of recovery groups that use the one day at a time phrase, to me, that's, that's, that's the secret sauce. It's so often talked about and said in like, you know, or in the parking lot, hey, one day at a time, you keep, but if you truly truly can live that that's all you need that literally is all you need is one all the all the wisdom of the saints and the mystics are come back to one day at a time the kingdom is in the here and now you know the buddha is present mindfulness in this moment you can be with the ones you want to be with in true connection your thinking mind doesn't exist because you're not worried about tomorrow or the past it comes back to one day at a time so for me yeah, that journey has been up and down. And it, it, I just didn't go to, to detox, lock up, rehab, psych ward or whatever it was called. I came back out and, and dabbled around. Like I had some long sobriety in that time. And I did some, you know, like like I would sneak a vodka nip. Like, I just wonder how this one vodka nip would taste. <laughs> <laughs> like, because that's me, right? That's, that's part of it. It's been a long time since my last, well, whatever long time means since my last actual drink of any kind of alcohol, but I don't like to keep those days or those numbers and no disrespect for those that do, because I think it's really important for many people, especially other people to witness that this is possible. But eventually I think you come to the days don't matter anymore. It just doesn't. I have to do it just today. Maybe I'm going to get radically messed up at like 2024 or so i don't know idea i don't think about that i really keep it in the day so yeah there is no bow there's no magic moment there is no like ah here it all becomes it is a, it is a constant practice good to make me feel better about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think some people that that we see that we think are like magical or strong or the priest or all these things aren't like, I've seen that. Like, I've, I've been on the other side, you know? I've been, and people put up these, these, these veneers, you know, and these masks. We need to get rid of that and just be real with each other. Yes, yes. I, I preach some things pretty constantly on my show. Self-awareness, which is pretty much what you were talking about mm. with being mindful and, and awareness yes. for yourself. I, I think that that's part of the secret sauce. Practicing the things that... Mm. The things, whether it's meditation or self-care or, you know, whatever the things are. So I love that we're aligned 
of course, you say everything more eloquent, and I have to go oh. look up half the words you said tonight. In this Boston accent? I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> you have a marvelous vocabulary. <laughs> I really do. I really do love it. And I totally lost my whole train of thought. I was no. getting to a point. So the things that you that you preach on your podcast about, I was going to say awareness, self you said self-awareness. Yes, but it was, you, you kind of brought it all home and put it in, in, in just such a, I don't know, a very, it was clear to me what you were mm-hmm. saying. Sure, there was sure. There's still sure. another point in there that I, I completely lost. And that's okay. I'll think of it as soon as we hang up. I'm, I'm sure. No, that's fine. I appreciate <laughs> it. I think awareness is key. I like to use the term radical honesty. And we were talking about keeping it real. Radical honesty in the recovery world, and, and we know it if you've been in it in a long time, honesty needs to play a much bigger role. <laughs> we're extremely dishonest with each other. And ourselves. I think it starts because people aren't honest with themselves. Could not agree more. You are absolutely right because it comes from that. It becomes from a, a, such of a long time of being dishonest with ourselves that becoming honest with one another. And honestly, it doesn't mean like I tell everything. It just means we're being honest. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think that a true breakthrough for anyone that on the recovery path is practicing radical honesty. And absolutely with self, it has to come from self first, because once it does come from self, it can, it, then it will overflow. And it's such of a freeing, freeing experience to be honest. And we all seek freedom, I think. Liberation is freedom. The kingdom of God is freedom. I think that's what we seek. <laughs> we, seek we seek freedom. And, and the key to that for me is, is honesty. Yes, I agree. And I remembered my point. Let's see if I can say it well. When we get to, in your story of, like, the happy ending is essentially getting connected back to yourself, right? And the original who we were when sure. we were a child, essentially, you know, like, in, in heart and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. And I've been referring to myself now as the new Bobby. But mm. what I heard tonight is I'm actually the old Bobby, like a better version of the old Bobby or a grown-up version and this is just my simplistic thinking. Uh, I, I, yeah. But it really came full circle for me in this conversation. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. For me, it, it, it's beyond sense. <laughs> in that, and here's the paradox, it's not the old Bobby or the new Bobby. It's just Bobby. It's the eternal Bobby. Yeah. The Bobby that always has been and the Bobbies that, that always will be, right? The, the eternal part of you. Um, is what we return to. Thich Nhat Hanh says this, and, and you've heard this in, in, when I teach sometimes. He explains it like this, that you got to imagine an ocean, just a big, beautiful ocean. And then for a moment in that time, a wave will be formed kind of near the shore. And this wave will travel towards the shore. But the only way this wave exists is, A, it came from ocean, right? All this water. The rest of the ocean supports it, otherwise it can't exist. And as it builds and goes towards the, the shore, it has this kind of individual wave identity just for this moment in time, but it crashes and then it returns to what it always was, the same ocean, the same water. And I think life is like that, that our individual Patrick, Bobby, for a moment, yes, hey, look at that wave over there, that's Bobby. Hey, look at that wave, that's Patrick. But eventually we return to the wholeness the whole ocean. And I don't know if like, we have this individual consciousness that you see me and I see you. I don't think so. I think we just all are oneness and there's no more duality. 
there's no more subject and object. It's just usness. And usness is the ocean. And so when you talk about the old Bobby and the new Bobby, it's the same wave, Bobby, but it's really the same ocean. And that's what I want to return to is, is seeing myself as ocean. And this, this little identity for this moment in time is just an illusion. It's just a, a period of time. And I will be ocean because I always was. Wow. That was a beautiful way to describe it. And, and you turned on more light bulbs for me. Thank you for sharing that with everyone. Is there, so I was, I was being a little selfish, right? It's step 11, spirituality, mm. November, all that stuff. So that was kind of strategic timing on my part to get to meet you. But is there anything that I forgot to ask you or that we want to mm. mention before we depart? and go back to me in our own oceans instead of together. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I was thinking a lot about what you said about like the package, like the bow and wrapped it up. And I think most of us will say, yeah, life is, is not like that. It's a constant, it's ever changing, right? And it's impermanent. And it's that the, the only thing that, that is constant is the impermanence of, of it all, right? And that's why the day at a time is so important because there isn't just this one magical moment. The day is the magical moment. Fully alive today is the magical moment. Whatever happens tomorrow happens tomorrow. But I think most of us can relate to, I just need to live fully today. We're constantly waiting. We're waiting for a pandemic to come over. We're waiting, we're waiting for this next relationship. We're waiting for this next job. We're waiting for if I hit make this much money. We're waiting for if I finally get the... We do so much amazing work preparing for all these things in life, but we never truly live life. And we can only live life fully in the present moment. And the biggest thing, uh, if I could get out to your audience and to myself, is, <laughs> is live in the present moment, fully live in the present moment, love the present moment. And when you drift from it, come back to it. Yeah. I, I, have, to, I have to call that out Bobby style too. So many people say to me with the life that I choose to live. You know, like I told you before we got on the air, I went on this road trip and so many people tell me they wish they could. And I've heard mm. that message from the time I was even 22 as a truck driver driving around the world. These women would say to me, I always wanted to, but I got pregnant, but I this, but I that. Like there's mm. always these excuses. So I, I really just want like our farewell message to be the one day at a time. And like, yeah, like just do it. Like mm -hmm. just live, just be, just do it. Cause it is, it's there for all of us. It's no different whether it's you in Boston or me in New York or someone halfway around the world. We all have that ability. And even better for us gamblers, it's free. <laughs> like, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is a double blessing. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for being here, Patrick. Like, oh, it's my honor. This was amazing, amazing. I can't promise I won't ask you to come back, but... Oh, anytime. I'd love to, yeah. What'd I tell you? Fabulous, right? Like, he's absolutely... Well, I told him that I have to, you know, look up words after hanging <laughs> up with him. He's a very intelligent man, and we covered a lot of ground. I know I'm going to go back and listen again so I can absorb it all and be present while listening and not, you know, be multitasking of, of being in the conversation and recording the show. But so much value, so much value. So grateful for Patrick and, and so glad that we've made a connection. Well, until next time, beautiful people, you have a great weekend. So long. Uh,